how people shop is definitely continuing to change, whether it's new channels like chat commerce, new models like subscription or rental, or whole new classes of sellers like content creators. But which long-term trends do merchants really need to be paying attention to now? Let's delve into that in this episode of Navigating Digital Payments. Welcome to the Navigating Digital Payments podcast, brought to you by Worldline, bringing you the latest innovations, trends, and predictions about the future of payments. Hello, and welcome to this, the third episode in the second season of Navigating Digital Payments, which we've launched to coincide with the publication of the latest edition of our Navigating Digital Payments report. I'm David Daly. I look after the Discovery Hub here at Worldline, and I'm genuinely delighted to be welcoming back to the podcast two fantastic guests. We have Jeff Barraclough, who is the founder of the Business of Payments, which is a website, and there's an accompanying newsletter, lots of information, always up to date with the latest trends, well worth taking a look at. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Very pleased to be here, David, and uh, thanks for inviting me back and uh, so much to talk about. Definitely great to have you on board. And of course, my co-host practically on the show, Ina Kostiuk, the global partner manager for the merchant services part of the Worldline business. Ina, great to have you here. Thank you, gentlemen. I'm delighted to, to join the discussion. Great to have you here as well, Ina. So, I mentioned just then the the latest edition of our Navigating Digital Payments report, and in it we kind of broadly focus on trends in two different areas. So one is the kind of the fundamental aspects of trust that underpin everything about payments, and then the other area is what we call the new world of payments, which is what we use to really describe the the changes that will be visible and noticeable to merchants and consumers. And and the five trends we looked at in that area were alternative commerce, the needs of small merchants, the metaverse, generative AI, and open payment ecosystems. And I thought it'd be really nice in this episode to get your views on which of these trends you think are going to be important for merchants and they need to be paying attention to now versus the ones that are either less important or, or less urgent at this time. And then also, maybe at the end, I'd like to ask you both if there are any big trends you think merchants need to be watching out for that we perhaps either didn't cover in the report or didn't didn't pay enough attention to. Um, but Jeff, maybe first I can come to you and get your your general reaction or your general sort of first thoughts um, on, on the latest edition of the Navigating Digital Payments report. Well, I think it's a fascinating study and would recommend anybody listening here to, to download it and, and take a read. There have been a number of global payment reports issued in the last uh, last few weeks. I think the Worldline one is different because it, it gives a little bit more theory, a little bit more structure around how things are happening, why they're happening, a framework for analysis uh, of uh, what might happen next, rather than being a, a barrage of statistics, which we get with, uh, with, with, a, with a few of these. I think what we're going to talk about today is fascinating. I would highlight the other half of the report around digital identity and trust as the new money. I'm not really qualified to give an expert view on that, but uh, well worth a read because that's the, the, the other side of the coin that we're talking about today. 
Thank you, Jeff. And, and I think maybe we come on straight then to some of those those topics that are the visible changes. And, and one of them that we talk about is alternative commerce. And in particular, we looked at this kind of shift towards rental, subscription, sharing models, which have always been around, actually, but applying them to kind of a wider range of products and services. So in your view, is that something merchants need to be aware of thinking about now? Well, absolutely. I mean, subscription commerce has been growing for, for some time. If we if we look back, uh, software as a service is probably the first category that's gone mature uh, with subscriptions. It, nobody would buy it, or very rarely would you buy a, a, a one-time license for software now. You pay a rental, and that gets you updates uh, and subscriptions uh, and, and so on. So people are kind of comfortable with that model. Uh, and software as a service companies... Uh, like that because they're able to bill uh, every month and that gives them a stable revenue flow and the confidence to uh, to invest and, and give you those those product updates. Now, subscription commerce is, is always a challenge uh, on, on, on both sides and that's partly because the way the payment industry is structured, it's not very good at recurring uh, and we've seen some, some research showing that when, particularly with cards, when card details expire, uh, you can get up to 40% uh, what they call involuntary churn. That's people who, who reconsider whether they want a subscription when their card expires. That works the other side as well, because we have a growing number of consumer advocates suggesting that maybe subscription commerce locks people into uh, contracts with businesses they don't really want. And uh, customer inattention, if you like, uh, means they spend more than they need. Again, interesting research in the US shows that um, this inattention, so people's uh, unwillingness or inability or haven't got enough time to go to their subscriptions and cancel what they don't want, uh, is growing revenues between you know, 14 and 200% in, in certain categories. So you can see why it's very exciting for, for businesses, maybe also why there's one or two concerns at the consumer end of things. One thing that strikes me, you're right, we've seen it with software for a long time. One of the more surprising examples to me was running shoes I saw offered as subscription where you get your shoes in the post, you're paying a monthly fee, and then after six months or beyond six months, you could return them, they would be recycled and you'd get a, get a new pair. But I think one difference when you're talking about physical goods is you know, with a with a Netflix subscription, if you stop paying or your card expires, they can turn turn off your access to it very easily. And that will encourage you if you want to keep watching programs to to renew your card details whereas when you have some physical goods it's a bit harder to recover those those goods if someone stops paying the subscription and i do i remember seeing that i think it's one of the maybe unthought of benefits of direct debit that of course people's bank account details tend to change less frequently i mean my bank account has basically been the same for the last 20 years um but of course cards by their very nature, they expire. So sometime, I, I wonder if we might see a shift in in you know towards account to account or other payment means for those kind of recurring uh, services, particularly if it's hard to recover the goods. One of the main driver, I think, uh, for subscription growth, uh, also it, uh, the observing changing behavior of customers, especially for the younger population. When we see the Gen Z, they prefer to uh, have an access rather to have the ownership of things. So that's why they're easier to go to rental stuff than to buy stuff. And it's really this mindset of freedom or, or on the way if you want, 
there are t two elements I wanted to highlight. The first, um, that I, I think it was Zalanda who is actually uh, offering the subscription uh, monthly package of clothes. And the, the mainly targeted population between 25 to 40 years old. They, they wanted to send you on subscription base every month clothes, whatever style you choose, and to, to have the exchange of it. So it could work with goods potentially as well. I mean, the report highlights fashion as a potential area, both for subscription and for, for reuse. I think that's challenging because of the issues around sizing and around returns management. It's a very labor-intensive model. Uh, you have to clean the clothes, press them, send them out again. If people don't like the sizing, they'll return them. It may work with some of the larger brands. So H&M, for example, now has a, a sort of second-hand section where you can return your goods to H&M for resale, and they'll sell them again. They might have enough, uh, the word probably is liquidity in the market. So if you go to H&M secondhand store, they'll probably have the size you want in the product you want. Whereas if you, if you go to a, a secondhand clothes store, the chance of finding something you like in your size is very low. So you need that, you need, need that liquidity. But um, I'm afraid my view is I think that's still going to be a little bit niche. Uh, what isn't niche is the category of subscription and the effort in the payment industry of making that uh, a, a bit easier. I mean, Forrester found recently that about 8% of card subscriptions typically don't go through, uh, normally because the card has expired. You know, clearly, account up data, which both Visa and MasterCard have been commercializing for some years, different in different countries, whether it works now, well, it works, uh, is a way of uh, resolving that one. Uh, and clearly now network uh, tokenization is, is, a, is a really key tool that all merchants really should be using, particularly if, they, if, they, if they're on the subscriptions. And we've seen maybe a uh, five percentage point increase in acceptance rates uh, where network tokenization is deployed. Both Visa and MasterCard have highlighted that uh, in their recent results. So yeah, definitely for merchants, if you're not using network tokenization, you really should be looking at it. Ina, another topic we looked at in the report was small merchants and the needs of small merchants. And I think we kind of we touch on the fact that small merchants are a really important role to play. They they kind of boost the local economy and potentially they can provide goods in a more sustainable way with less you know lower delivery um, footprints. Um, when you look at uh, at our clients, how do you see the needs of small merchants differing from larger merchants? Especially in nowadays, both uh, bigger and small are concerned about the economical state and uh, the financial state uh, of their consumers, for sure. Uh, however, the concerns are expressed differently. So small merchant, like, or really like uh, micro merchant, like bakeries, they sometimes work just three days of the week uh, out of uh, five or six days. And uh, having uh, maybe lost like 10 to 20% to uh, in their income, but they reduce significantly on the cost, on a, a retaining shop, of paying for, for the employees, uh, also all utility cost deduction uh, can have a big saving there. However, big merchants are really focusing on how to use data. What does data tell them? How they can uh, optimize, make the efficiency rate higher uh, with different technology. 
It's interesting, you know, you because one thing we say in the report is that actually one of the driving forces is this changed economic context, which is essentially that we're in a higher inflation environment and a, a slower growth, reducing the spending power of businesses and consumers, and businesses therefore have to react, as you say, to find ways to optimise their their cost base. Um, so the, the, I suppose what you're saying is the the source of the the challenge is perhaps a little bit the same for large and small merchants, but how they're responding is 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 a bit different. The third topic I mentioned at the start was the metaverse. Now, Jeff, I I'm pretty sure last time we spoke, you were pretty sceptical about uh, <laughs> about the metaverse. Um, so, has the chapter in our report changed your mind or, or changed your perception of it? Well, I'm afraid not, David. I I still think that the metaverse (laughs) has gone through the hype cycle faster than anything else in my lifetime. I've never seen a a technology that um, got so much investment and so much disappointment within a mere mere 12 or 18 months. So uh, Meta, I think, has lost $46 billion on its bet on on the metaverse, which included changing the name of the company from Facebook uh, to Meta. Why is this? Well, I mean, we're going to come on to it. One reason is, is, that, is that the people who got excited about the metaverse are now even more excited about AI. But the problem with the concept of the metaverse, which is um, a science fiction thing, right? It's a hypothetical iteration of the internet as a single universal and immersive virtual world facilitated by the use of uh, VR and AR headsets, right? This is a thing that you you inhabit, you put on technology and you dive into this thing. It's not something that most people want to spend much time doing. It's got applications in gaming and, and, and elsewhere, but in reality, I think we want computers to inhabit our world and make the world that we live in better uh, and more interesting and more exciting and safer and, and more productive. We really don't want to uh, put on headsets. It's just not a nice thing to, to do. And I mean, Decentraland, which is the main main platform, is reporting a mere uh, 8,000 daily users. Uh, the, you know, the, the the commentators are declaring this dead. Um, so, yeah, sorry. You don't have to apologise. Yeah. And I think it's, um, in the end, in, in that chapter in the report, we did take a, a line that was really more to say that some of the technologies that have come out of that um, that buzz at the top of the hype curve could still have a longer term impact and and I don't know I mean maybe you can you can come back with your view on it my view is still that so when the headsets become lighter and cheaper um I think more people will use them and I uh, you know one one use case that I was reminded of the other day is that you can kind of hold google maps up in front of you and it will show you your directions if you if you have your phone with you um, obviously if my prescription glasses were exactly the same but I could just push a button and it would show me the directions um, superimposed on the world around me I would do that instead of holding a phone up do, do, do you see what I mean so I think there are applications of the technology although my personal view is we're probably five to ten years away from seeing the technology mature to a point where it's cheap light enough and easy enough to use for everyone well that's yeah that's a slightly different use case isn't it David, because they, they were talking about a different screen for your existing device. So yes, yeah. rather than looking at my phone, my, my, my phone will project itself onto my glasses, which I, mm-hmm. I would find quite helpful at times. That's a bit different to inha- going and inhabiting a different world. Because uh, again, I saw it with the, the Apple headsets. One surprising use case, I think, is just having a massive television in your lounge that is doesn't really exist. It's only viewed via the headset. 
But still, if you have a very big clunky headset, I'm not sure everyone wants to do that. It's maybe not so comfortable. But also the cost. If you're a family of five, at the moment, that's a very expensive solution to have a, a big screen. Um, but I, I know uh, another guest on the podcast said he had a, a, a lower cost headset that he uses to watch films when he's on flights because he could just have a more like a big screen experience rather than on an iPad or, or, or an iPhone. So I think where I would agree with you is I think it's very unlikely we will all permanently live in a metaverse. I think that, that, that doesn't seem likely to me. Well, uh, and, and we have seen some some interest, haven't we? So, so uh, we've seen uh, PKO BP, Poland's largest bank, has opened a branch in the metaverse, so it, so it says, uh, where it's holding job fairs. So it wants to try and recruit uh, software developers and others by, by giving itself a, a, a more exciting brand by having this this outlet there. And we're seeing some interest in, 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 in payments. So uh, for those who uh, listen to this podcast who disagree with me um, and, and will be building applications and, and, and services in the metaverse, uh, the, the payment companies have invested in... Um, in technology to allow you to charge your customers, because clearly, uh, how, you know, you, you can't, you know, you can't do a chip and pin transaction um, in, in in a virtual world with a headset on. You have to find a, a more a more a more seamless way uh, of, of paying for things. So, I mean, it, it's there, it's available. There is investment. There are ideas from clever people. So, I'd hate to write everything off entirely. I'm reminded there is a skills point because we 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 have a at Worldline we have a demonstration. For how to pay, it's it's very much to your point, Jeff. We have a few sort of proof of concepts around how you can make securely authenticated payments without having to remove your your headset. Um, but often, when people try this demo out, just moving around a virtual shop is really difficult. I mean, it's not a it's not like you put a headset on and you can just instantly walk around. It's a really learned thing at the moment to be able to kind of navigate in a in a virtual space. Um, and I guess the technology will improve, and there will be a generation that grows up just knowing how to do that but I again I mean I I keep showing my age on this podcast I remember um try, trying to show someone how to use a mouse probably 20 years ago and they held the mouse up in the air and were wondering why it wasn't moving on the screen and I kind of think we're a little bit at that stage with some metaverse technologies where things we now you know we find swiping and we find using a mouse and a keyboard most people find that quite intuitive now I don't think we're at that stage with the kind of the metaverse-related uh, technologies at all. Well, and particularly because we're still trying to replicate the real world in the metaverse demonstrations. It's always the way with digitization that often the first step is, as you say, reproducing something physical in digital form, and then people have to discover how you can do things differently. But if you think about payment with this new new space, there are quite a lot still to progress. And one, one of the big steps is that payment should become an open system, but stay secure, stay trustable, stay reliable. And uh, that requires both technological aspect, for sure, and uh, also regulatory one, because it's, it's not as easy to unite all payments across the world. And uh, good examples, of course, speaks in Brazil and UPI in India. But it's not uh, it's not all the world yet, and and it's and that's another trend. As I say, we I mentioned it at the start this this idea of open payment ecosystems. And Ina, you mentioned Pix and UPI, but also I think um, if we look at super apps and things like Alipay, how sometimes the payment part is providing some trust 
to also build other services on top of. I don't know, Jeff, do you have a view on this and and whether we might see the influence of these new approaches to payments, I suppose, that we've seen in sort of outside of the Europe and the US, where we're still, I think, mostly card based, if if I'm honest. Do you think we might see um, an impact from those ideas on the kind of European market? Well, I think both PIX and UPI are fascinating. So PIX in Brazil, UPI in India have been government-driven initiatives to democratise digital payments away from just folks who can have a bank account and can afford a, a, a credit card. And they've been wildly successful. So this is a QR code based. You scan a QR code and then uh, the transaction is pushed out of your mobile banking app or uh, if you haven't got a mobile banking app, you can sign up for a digital wallet and put cash into that wallet and then spend it electronically and so on. So, They've been hugely successful and, as you rightly say, now offers an ecosystem, the opportunity to build more services on the back of that. Is that relevant for for Europe? Uh, I mean, payment habits in Europe are ingrained. Uh, People already pay for things in the way they pay for them. It will take some shifting. Also, most Europeans already have a bank account. Most Europeans already have some kind of payment card. And online, they're used to using direct bank transfers in in, in Central and, and Eastern Europe. So shifting that behaviour is going to be difficult. Clearly, the European Payment Initiative, which uh, announced, I think, last week or week before, it had concluded the purchase of Ideal and Payconic, so it now has uh, the technology it needs to take that Dutch solution, if you like, and and, and Europeanise it, uh, could be very interesting. And I'll be be fascinated. One thing you didn't mention there is also the digital euro. And I know I've brought this up with um, Rick Kuckelbergs in the last episode. And he said, yeah, digital euro is very different. But where I do see that has a similarity to PIX and UPI is that it's it's a very much a government-led initiative around payments in, in the EU. It is. There's a very good paper that the uh, European Central Bank has published, which is very readable and understandable about what can be quite a complex and abstruse issue. But it's coming. So it's vital for, it's vital for European autonomy in, in the face of a, of a changing world. And I think European authorities are conscious that uh, Russia was able to maintain the war in Ukraine because it had moved off international payment systems and developed its own one, uh, which gave it um, the ability to operate in isolation from, uh, from the US. And I think Europe knows it has to do that, particularly uh, given the uncertainty around the next US uh, presidential election. But the, the digital euro uh, will not be programmable money. So it'll be a very simple product. It'll work offline and it'll work uh, through distributors. So the private sector will be able to build services around it and, and uh, incorporate it into its existing products, which I, th- I think will be quite quite helpful. So this kind of digital cash, I think, is definitely, definitely coming in Europe. Uh, in America, it's fallen foul of the culture wars. Uh, and um, a, a digital dollar does not seem to be on the agenda because uh, people think it's going to um, destroy destroy uh, uh, democracy and freedom as we know it. It's quite, uh, I think we discussed it last time on the podcast. I mean, there are people that uh, react quite strongly to the idea of digital currency. Maybe the, the last topic I wanted to come on to was generative AI, where, again, in my view, the buzz is maybe starting to settle down a little bit. And in in the report, we we kind of looked at it from two angles. So one was what could the impact be on payments, but we also tried to go a bit more widely into what we thought 
the impact or use cases could be for merchants. So, Jeff, where where are you on 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 generative AI, and do you think there are interesting developments there for merchants? Well, I think unlike blockchain and the metaverse, I think AI or generative generative AI has got legs, and the key reason is that it's it's democratized. Like anybody can use it. Go to ChatGPT. You can ask it to write a poem or ask it to write a letter to your boss. Uh, and it'll go and do it. You can play around with it and see what's what's available. You can go to Bing and use Bing's image creator and ask it to to, to, to make a picture for you. So uh, and it's free. So I, I think in that respect, unlike these other technologies, people can really feel the potential. Uh, and I think for that reason, it, it, it'll take hold uh, much, much faster. Now, clearly, AI has been used in payments for a long time for things like fraud scoring. Uh, but we're now seeing being used in, in checkout optimization. So I think this is really exciting for e-commerce companies. There are so many different permutations of transaction routing. Do you challenge for SCA or not? Uh, what APs, alternative payments do you offer in which markets and so on? That uh, having that decided for you on the fly, A-B testing done by the robots, uh, is really attractive. And we're seeing vendors making claims of up to five percentage points increase in, in acceptance rates. If people want to look at an example of where I think it works in the merchant environment, have a look at shop.app. Uh, so this is Shopify, which is a leading platform for small business merchants. They've got about one and a half million small business customers worldwide on, the, on, on using their platform. And they've put an AI-driven search website or bot or whatever on the top of that. And it uses a natural language search so you can chat with it as it finds you the right clothes from amongst these one million merchants now clearly lots of merchants are not on this service uh, and other services are available but shop.app is, a, is, a, is a, i think a good way of seeing what the potential is in terms of shopping so in a moment i'm going to ask that killer question of are there things we missed in the report or didn't emphasize enough in your view before we come on to that i do just want to remind people that if they would like to get in contact with us suggest other topics uh, give us any feedback then you can reach us by emailing mdp-podcast at worldline.com and also please if you haven't already take a moment to leave us a rating and a review and subscribe to the podcast that way you'll never ever have to worry about missing an episode again if you were worrying about that. Um, so, Jeff, maybe coming to you first, is there a trend, a topic that you think um, merchants need to be aware of, acting on that, that we didn't include in, in our report in the end? Well, I think, I think there are probably uh, three things, uh, David, and I'll, I'll be very brief. The first one uh, is payment orchestration. So there's a, a, a big trend to uh, merchants provisioning their own payment infrastructure from an orchestrator, and then selecting from a range of different processes, uh, if you like, insourcing some of the smart stuff we were talking about earlier on. I think open banking is definitely worth um, worth a view because that potentially can radically change the, the cost model uh, in, in payments, but potentially also provide better customer experience. The question is, when is it going to be ready? Uh, and the third one will be soft pause, because uh, in the context of the physical environment, uh, this allows the provisioning of a, of a payment application to any Android or now Android Apple device and eliminates the need for a separate payment terminal. So one device is everything. Uh, and how does that change your, your, your store or your field force operations? Strangely, I'm really pleased you mentioned those three things because I think one aspect we have with our report is we're always trying to look at the five to 10 year horizon with this publication. And many of those things are 
a bit more now, I would say. Although I, I know, for example, we, we did touch on the topic of payment orchestration in the context of um, resilience as well, because that's one factor with payment orchestration that you can basically sim- very simply route transactions to a different place if one service provider um, is not available for, for any reason. And of course, SoftPos as well, we, we touched on a little bit on, on the small merchants angle. Although I've, I remember, I think we discussed it previously, Jeff, the fact that uh, you also see it um, becoming more and more about bigger retailers as well, not having to have a dedicated payment terminal device in their store, but having something lightweight mobile easy to move around with that can have other applications installed alongside the um the point of sale solution well to give a, a couple of examples uh, so uh, all saints which is a, a british fashion retailer with like around 200 stores globally uh, is implementing soft pos so you've got tap to pay within its current mobile uh, epos and clienteling app which the staff carry around the store so that eliminates uh, a device but also uh, saves time and allows to offer uh, better service. And then in Field Force uh, in, in Poland, where it's quite use, quite normal for uh, e-commerce deliveries to arrive cash on delivery, so you, you you don't pay at the website, you pay when the goods arrive at your, at your home. And so the courier quite often carries a payment terminal with them. Um, two large courier companies are, uh, are going with SoftPos, so eliminating the payment terminal. Their their their, their Android Field Force automation device will now take the payments, which allows them to save time, money, effort, fewer service calls, and, uh, and, and so on. So I think this is really happening. Um, it may take five years uh, for this to pervade all aspects of, um, of commercial life in Europe, but uh, it's definitely coming. Uh, really, it's, it's great, Jeffrey, that you mentioned, because uh, just on topic of soft pause, I can talk a few hours easily, and uh, we won't fit on that episode, but what I got is an idea. Maybe we can ask our dear listeners, actually, to uh, return to us with the feedback and your thoughts. Which topic from the three Jeff mentioned, uh, payment orchestration, open banking, and soft pause, we, you want to hear first uh, on the next episode, and then we will organize it, and would be really keen to, to hear your thoughts on it as well. Super, let's do that. I may even add a poll to the episode so that people can, can directly give us the feedback. <laughs> so I don't think I'm even going to try and summarize our discussion because it has been pretty wide-ranging and covered a lot of different topics. It does, though, remind me that um, when I was maybe eight or nine years old, I, I was quite upset at one point and I said to my mum and dad um, there's nothing left to invent and I won't have anything to tell tell my grandkids about and I, I think if anything our discussion it just reminds me that you know the, the world has changed a lot in 10 20 years flying cars David I still waiting for flying cars <laughs> I, I, I was promised flying cars and I haven't got flying cars <laughs> <laughs> but you know, even that, I remember in the last edition of this report, we had the kind of autonomous taxi in in the introduction. And some people were saying, well, that seems a bit unrealistic for 10 years. And now, I mean, again, I don't want to make a absolute firm prediction, but I think re- reaching some degree of near full autonomy with cars in 10 years time is probably seeming feasible uh, which is just okay they're not flying sorry jeff so it doesn't quite um <laughs> doesn't quite meet your criteria but really things that were science fantasy uh, when i was growing up are are happening and and continuing to kind of uh, jump out so it just it just highlights i think how much how much the world generally is changing but also then how much that uh, impacts payments and and merchants as well
And it shows how difficult it is to predict the future. If you go back and read uh, 1950s science fiction, uh, the people go throughout the entire universe in, in, in the flash of an eye. They've invented uh, light speed travel and, and, and so on. But um, they haven't invented gender equality, so that they, they, haven't, they haven't understood that actually women will take a leading role in society in the future. Uh, and they're still reading newspapers, and they're still smoking. They so so, so, so the, 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 um, some of these huge, huge changes in society just um, pass by the futurologists, I think. Isn't there that uh, famous quote that it's it's quite hard to make predictions, especially about the future, uh, which I think stays true. So really want to thank both of you so much um, for joining the podcast again for this discussion. Jeff, really great to have you back. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's uh, always a pleasure. And please everybody download the report and read it. Thank you for that little uh, that little pitch, Jeff. That's much appreciated. And uh, Ina, of course, always great to be uh, presenting these podcasts with you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And that just leaves me finally to thank our dear listeners for joining us once again as we navigated digital payments. Thank you for listening to the Navigating Digital Payments podcast, brought to you by Worldline. Join us next time to learn more about the latest innovations, trends, and predictions for the future of payments. Thank you.